We're going to look in Isaiah 53. Actually, we'll turn to Isaiah 52, but we're mainly going to be looking at Isaiah 53. And let's pray. Let's go before the Lord. And Father, I ask you, Lord, we bow our hearts before you, and I uh, just ask you'll visit us here, and you'll make your word come alive by your Holy Spirit to our hearts and speak to us, and that we can behold the Lamb of God and all he's done for us, Lord, and it will, that our hearts can rejoice. We can know that we can trust in what he's done at Calvary. Uh, and I ask you'll do that for us today in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to begin reading in Isaiah 52, 13, and read those last three verses there, and then all of chapter 53. So Isaiah 52, 13, Isaiah writes, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. And so shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him, for that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. For who has believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. But surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes or wounds we are healed. And all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, and for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him or crush him. He has put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now, Jesus' death, it took place over 2,000 years ago. And it, to state it mildly, it's the greatest tragedy of justice that the world has ever seen. I mean, it is actually disgraceful on mankind that he was crucified. Because, think about it, this Jesus, the one that healed the multitudes, fed the 5,000. He held the little children in his arms. He was transfigured on the Mount of Glory. He didn't deserve, that Jesus didn't deserve to be mocked, to be beaten, to be spitten on, and finally to be crucified. I mean, that is the most agonizing, slow death that has ever been invented by mankind. Most cruel death you could ever suffer. And so when we talk about pain, that we have this pain that is excruciating, means we can't handle it anymore, that comes from the cross. X means out of excruciating crucifixion out of the cross we say our pain is more than we can bear that's what it comes from the pain someone would suffer and be enduring on the cross and that's what our Lord had to endure and so the one who went about doing good healing all that were oppressed of the devil he didn't deserve that kind of treatment you know the one who was holy harmless undefiled and separate from sinners he shouldn't have had to wear a crown of thorns 
dying slowly as a criminal on a tree. But yet he did. But yet he did. Now listen, his death, it was the most famous death of all. His death is the most famous death of all because most famous people, we know a lot about their lives, but we know little about the way they died. And frankly, most of the time, you don't really care. But yet the Gospels give a disproportionate amount of space to the sufferings and death of our Lord. That tells us right there, they are not a biography. As someone said, that's just a long introduction. The Gospels are a long introduction to the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Matthew spends two-fifths of his gospel talking about his suffering and death. Luke takes one-third of his gospel to talk about our Lord's suffering and death. John spends over one-half of his gospel talking about that. And Mark has three-fifths of his gospel talking about the suffering and deaths of our Lord. And so everything is in the gospels are leading up and pointing to that climax, the cross, the main focus of the Gospels, and the reason for that is because the death of Jesus Christ is the key vital event of all of history. Not just church history, all history. Because no other event has shaped the course of this world like the death of our Lord. So all roads, God is in control. All roads from the time of Adam all the way up to the death of Jesus, everything was leading up to that point in time in history. The fact that Rome was in power at that time, everything was leading up to that point. And since that time, everything emerges from that. History goes forward from that point. And at the end of history, as we know it, because we know what the Bible says, it says what? Every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess. Why? Because this slain lamb has been exalted and risen as king of kings and lord of lords. It's all going to point to the cross. No event even comes close. And it is the reason, the cross, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about it. That is why God himself, God Almighty, came into this world and took on flesh to die. There's a lot of churches, a lot of places that teach Jesus came into this world to bring ethical teachings, to give us an example, to declare God's love. Well, he declared God's love by what he did on that cross. That's what we learn in 1 John. And he did all of those things, and they're good. No problem there. But he came primarily, the Lord Jesus Christ came here to die. Hebrews 2.9 says this, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. He was a man that came to this earth unlike any other religious leader. No other religious leader talks about my whole purpose is to come and die. That was what Jesus said repeatedly. You go through, we're in the Gospel of Mark, you read Mark 8.31, Mark 9.31, Mark 10.32, and it says, he tells his disciples way before it happens, I am going to suffer, be humiliated, die, and rise again. That is my purpose. He's a man with a mission. He came here to die. Matthew 20, 28 says this, Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And what we have to see is there was a ransom that had to be paid for your sins and mine. And without that ransom being paid, we were doomed. <laughs> and there was only one who could meet the conditions to pay our ransom, and that is the Son of God, the only one that could meet the conditions. So if Calvary, I'm saying, here's why it's such a great event. If it hadn't taken place, there would be no forgiveness for anyone. No forgiveness. And that's why it's the vital event of all. Yet, that event that took place is one of the most misunderstood events of all time. Let's go back where we started here, Isaiah 52, 13. And the Lord says here, I want to just point, so he says, Behold my servant. So whether you know it or not, there are four what they call servant songs in the book of Isaiah. It begins in Isaiah 42 and goes on through. And what this is is saying there is a suffering servant, a servant coming who will bring salvation. And that servant is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so 
Look at how he describes this servant here in verse 13. He says, behold, my servant, this one that will bring you salvation. This is the last time he's talked about him. He says, but he shall deal prudently and he shall be exalted, extolled, and very high. God says, look at him. Look at my servant. He'll deal wisely. He's going to be exalted, lifted up, and very high. Look at him there. And so you get that. But then he turns right around in verse 14 and describes the most hideous picture. And as many were astonished at you, he's talking to the servant. Many were astonished at you. His visage was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. That word astonished means they are appalled. He's saying, look at my servant, behold him. And it says when they looked at him, they are appalled and shocked at you, the servant. And they don't see that servant as high and exalted. They're looking at him and saying, this is what this is saying in verse 14. They're looking at him and saying, are you even human? You don't even look human, what we're seeing, and highly exalted. The NLT, I like the way this translation gives verse 14. He says, but many were amazed when they saw him. He's saying, behold my servant, high and exalted. But it says, but many were amazed when they saw him because his face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was human. So what a contrast God is painting here. The highly exalted and lifted up one followed by a totally mangled man hanging on that cross. Yet, verse 15 says, here are the results of that. This servant, this person that doesn't even look like a man, is going to have a worldwide impact. He's saying he will sprinkle many nations. And we know, because of what the revelation we've had, that that blood is going to be the saving effect on many nations, all kindreds and people from everywhere, all over the earth. A multitude will be saved out of the earth. And that's what he's saying there. And he goes on to say, the kings of the earth, they will be dumbfounded and speechless. So they viewed that servant in his suffering and death. They viewed him entirely wrong. And he says they are going to see and consider this servant in a way they never had before. One day, all these kings that have rejected him, all these empires, they're going to see, oh, man, we made a huge mistake. Our eyes are opened. You know, Rome, they used to have paintings of a jackass on the cross. That's what they thought of Christianity. And one day they'll say, oh, no, that's what you thought. Because of the figure that you saw on there, that was not what was going on. The most misunderstood event of all time, a paradox, a puzzle. That's what we have here. And that is why, because of that, Isaiah goes on to say in verse 1, he asks a question. Who has believed our report? And you know what the answer is? No one. No one could believe that. And he goes on to say, here is why, with the second question. He answers that, why that is. Because to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? It's got to be a revelation for someone to see a crucified carpenter on a cross to be the power of God unto salvation. It's got to be a revelation. That's what he's saying right there. To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? The arm of the Lord represented not something apart from God, but God himself and all of his almighty power. That's what it represented. And say, who can that be revealed to? Because that's what we're talking about. The Savior on a cross is really not what he appears to be. Because God told Israel, here's what he says about the arm of the Lord. He told them, when you go in to conquer the promised land, he said, don't be afraid, but remember something. You're getting ready to go into Canaan's land. Remember what happened back in Egypt. He said, with a mighty hand and a stretched out arm, the Lord thy God brought thee out with signs and wonders. The arm of the Lord is his power for salvation. That's what it stands for. And Jesus is the arm of the Lord. He is him. Look up in 52.10. Verse 10, it says, The Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. It's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, God himself, 
has come as the arm of the Lord to bring the salvation of God. And he is the power of God in action. That's what he is. But your human reason, a person's human reason, is never going to bring you to see that. You're not going to reason somebody into the faith. It's only a revelation that comes from God. Only he can open your eyes. But listen, here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews, it's a stumbling block. But unto the Greeks, foolishness. But unto them which are called. The ones that have that effectual call by the Holy Spirit. He says, both Jews and Greeks. He says, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ crucified. To those that have had their eyes open, he is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The arm of the Lord. Verse 2 tells us why this has to be a revelation. Why you're not going to just see it on your own. Verse, verse 2 tells us why. It says, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. And when it's saying that he grows up before him as a tender plant and a root out of dry ground, that's speaking of his humanity. And so he's saying, hey, here's what happens. People just look at this Savior. They don't see him as that. They see him as just a man. He's a man. He had a father and a mother as far as they knew. Because here's what they said in Matthew. They said, is not this the carpenter's son? That's what they're saying. Here's a guy. He's got a mom and dad just like everybody else. Nothing special. Is not this the carpenter's son? And is not his mother called Mary? And they're looking at him according to this verse 2. And they're saying he's not only a man. He is just an average man. No form, no comeliness, no beauty. And that word form means stately form. No majesty, no beauty. It's just like you look at him and Jesus to say he is just not impressive to look at or handsome. He doesn't carry himself as an important person. That's what he's saying, no majesty. He doesn't just have this stately character about him. You know, we have presidents. You got JFK. I mean, he's one of those kind of people. He's tall, dark, handsome, enters the room. Everybody's like, whoa, he's got that personality. That magnetic personality. Jesus had none of that. He wasn't like that. He's like David. You know, Samuel goes and, and the Lord tells him, you go into that house and I'll show you which one to anoint. Well, here the tall, dark, and handsome one comes and Samuel is, he's a prophet. No discernment. He looks at him and he's like, this has got to be the one. And the Lord says, uh-uh. I don't look as man looks. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God says he looks where? He looks right there. He looks on our heart. So here, verse 3 goes on to say, because of what they're seeing, what the human eye is seeing, most people in that day despised and rejected him. It says they turned their faces from him. You know what that means? Have you ever been shunned? Have you ever done something to somebody and they shun you or a group of people shun you because they don't like you? That's what happened to him because they didn't see him for who he was. You know, there was a man... His name was John Merrick, or Joseph Merrick, I think was his real name. But he was called the Elephant Man. And he was on the outward appearance. He was totally disfigured. Nothing he could help. His own parents, they beat him. His father beat him because he was, you're eating my food, but you're not earning any money. And when he would try to go out and earn money by selling things door to door, his, this, this elephantitis he had, he couldn't talk right. People just abused him left and right. And he ended up being in a freak show. It's the only way he could survive. And he'd go out on the streets one time. He got stuck in this terminal, this train terminal, trying to find his way to meet this man. And everybody just wants to get away from him. And he can't talk to him. He can't get any. They're looking at him like that. But this man was a devout Christian. And he had a very tender heart and prayed to God constantly. Prayed the Psalms. He knew the Psalms. I'm saying that people tend to look on the outward and they shun people like that. He was shunned. And that's what it's saying happened to our Lord Jesus Christ. It says he was looked at as a man. And look what it says here at the end of verse 3. He says, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And that word for esteemed is an accounting word. It means to add up the value of something, to see what it's worth. And so it's saying here, men looked at Jesus as a man, and when they added up all they saw in the natural, you know what they came up with? The sum total of zero. 
You're just an insignificant nobody. That's how they see him. Someone to be despised. And that's not just them. We would have done the same thing outside of the grace of God if we lived back in that day. It's just not those people. So there's a real paradox with the cross, isn't there? In a lot of ways. And Martin Lloyd-Jones described that paradox in the cross. Let your mind now go to view the cross and what you're seeing. And there you see hanging on the cross is a man. He appears just to be an ordinary man, right? But is that really the case? He is more than just a man. He is the God-man. Fully God, fully man. The Son of God made flesh. The Bible says it's a mystery that we will never understand. Great is the mystery of godliness that God himself was manifest in the flesh. Yet all they can see with their eyes when you look at that cross is a man of flesh hanging there because his glory is veiled by the flesh, isn't it? When did that come forth? What was really being veiled, covered by that flesh? He was always God, never ceased to be that. The man of transfiguration, the veil parts temporarily, right? And there comes the glory of God out for men to see. But they're not seeing that on the cross. No, they're just seeing an ordinary man. And on that cross, Jesus was in utter poverty. No home, no property, nothing, not even his own clothes. They sold those. And yet, the Bible says this. Here he is hanging there, a man with nothing in poverty. And yet, the Bible says that he is the heir of all things. He owns everything that exists. But on the cross, he's hanging there destitute. And Paul wrote, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. And as you continue to look on the cross, there he hangs. He's weak. He's helpless with no strength. Just a pitiful figure hanging there, a wasted man. And yet, the one that you see like that, a man in poverty, weak and helpless, he is the one by whom God made the worlds. He holds all things, the Bible says, in the universe together by the word of his power. One spoken word by this person that appears totally helpless on the cross. One spoken word, and he said what? 10,000 angels would be right there to help him. Yet there he hangs, dying, weak, and helpless. And on the cross, he hangs between two thieves. That is shame and contempt. He hangs as a criminal, yet he is the one that sits on the right hand of the majesty most high. He's viewed as a criminal, yet he will one day be the judge of all the earth. That's the paradox. And the shame of the cross, it says, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. So to the human eye, as you look at him hanging there, he looks like a man who has been cursed by God and dying in shame. But who is that one that looks like he's cursed and dying in shame? The Bible said he is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, the king of glory. But it's all hidden from the natural eye, right? So you see the natural human eye sees the crucifixion as the death of a misguided man. There hangs a man that is barely recognizable to be a man. And how could this man claim to be the Son of God? He is weak and helpless, cursed by God and put to shame. That is how man saw him. And that's what we're seeing here in these first three verses. But God gives the revelation of what was really taking place in verses 4 to 6. And so we sang this song earlier. He says, Surely he has borne our sickness and carried our pains, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and inflicted. That surely there, what it means is, but in fact. He's saying, you see this person, you esteem him as nothing. But surely means, uh-uh, surely. But in fact, what you're seeing is not the way it is. He wasn't smitten of God or cursed by God. He was bearing your sicknesses and carrying your pains. So he wasn't being cursed. He was bearing our curse. So we wouldn't have to. And so here's a verse we used to quote all the time, a great verse for healing, to trust God for anything, that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. 
For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. So if in your translation of the Bible, griefs and sorrow are not a good translation. That's just the way it is. That's not what that's saying. The Hebrew says sicknesses and pains. So for many of us, we would know this, but maybe some don't. If you would turn, put something there and turn back to Matthew 8. We'll let Matthew translate this rather than a commentary. Matthew 8, verses 16 and 17. So here is that same verse translated griefs and sorrows. Here it is in Matthew 8, 16 and 17. It says, when the even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick. Why did he do that? That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, which we just read, himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. I'm going to go with what the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew, how he inspired him to translate that. I don't care what the commentators say. I don't what, care what the King James Bible says. It's wrong. It should be sicknesses and pain. Now, E.J. Young, who this is not somebody that necessarily believed in divine healing, He's got a three-volume set, commentary on Isaiah. It's considered the classic set. Listen to what E.J. Young says about this. He says, the reference in Matthew 8, 17 is appropriate. In other words, that's not a mistranslation. Thank you, Mr. Young. But he says, for although the figure of sickness here used refers to sin itself, the verse, so we're talking about Isaiah 53, the verse also includes the thought of the removal of, of the consequence of sin. That's what happened. So Jesus wasn't have literal sickness come on him, but he's paying the price for our sin, and in doing that, he's removing the consequences too. That's what that verse is saying. And Young went on to say, disease is the inseparable companion of sin. And so as we're looking at Isaiah 53, 4, if you're back there, it proves that healing is in the atonement. It's a purchased right as much as forgiveness is. Does anybody doubt when they pray and ask God, you bring somebody to the Lord, do you sit there and say, you know, you can come to the Lord, you can pray and ask the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive you if it be thy will. Nobody does that. You're not going to bring somebody to the Lord like that because God has provided it's whosoever will. I've provided it here. Just come and appropriate it. So with forgiveness, it's the same with healing. Sin and sickness are linked, and as Young said, disease is the inseparable companion of sin. And it's that way in the scriptures. Psalm 103 says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits, who forgives all thine iniquities. And everybody in every church practically will say amen to that. But he goes on to say, not only all thine iniquities, but he heals all thine diseases. Amen? Amen. Amen. He does. And we have the same thing where sin and sickness are linked in James chapter 5. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up. But listen to what he adds at the end. And if he has committed sins, they shall be forgiven him if he's committed sins. So it's possible, he's saying, it doesn't have to be in every case. It just could be a trial. It could be a Job's trial. Job hadn't sinned that somebody's flat on their back needing prayer. But he's saying, if he's committed sins, and that's what's brought this on, he says, they will be forgiven him. So forgiveness has to happen, and then that healing will take place. So sin and sickness can be related, and you deal with the sin issue many times, and healing will follow. So the point we're trying to see here, just at this point right here, this is not making a big deal out of nothing. Everybody's dealing with sickness at one time or another. It's a worldwide problem. The healthcare system, if that collapsed, it would ruin our country. And I'm saying right here, God has given us the remedy, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, his blood and the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? He provided forgiveness from sin on the cross. That's what we're reading here and divine healing. I'm saying those are the facts. Those are the facts. Divine healing is always ministered by the Spirit of God and no other way. And how much of that we appropriate is up to us. But he has made it available, as it said.
right? One thing I want to point out here too, when it says, surely he has borne, now this to me is encouraging to my faith. It means more than to just take away. It means a lifting up off and a carrying away. You picture that next time you have an illness. I don't have to deal with this. You know, I liked what Bevington said. He said when he first was taught about divine healing and he had a growth or I don't know what it was, or some illness, they were telling him you got to deny it. And he's like, I'm, he was trying to deny the existence even though he's hurting. And then he said he prayed about it. He was getting confused. And God says, no, you don't have to deny the fact you hurt. You don't have to deny the fact that you got something growing on you that shouldn't be there or whatever it is. But you can deny the fact of the devil to put it on you. Because Jesus is saying right here, he's born that. He's lifted it off of you if you're a believer and carried it away. And by faith, he'll make that real. That's what the Bible teaches. That is how faith works. And trusting God for healing. And that carried means to shoulder or to take a burden. He took that burden of our pains on himself on the cross. So we don't have to. Amen? It's a positive thing that happens there. And Young went on to say this. He says, it should be noted that the consequences of sin and not sin itself are mentioned. That's what he's saying here. He's not saying surely he has borne our griefs, our sins. He's saying the consequences, your sicknesses and pains. He's saying the consequences of sin and not sin itself are mentioned. Nevertheless, when it is said that he bore our sicknesses, what is meant is not that he became a fellow sufferer with us. In other words, Jesus didn't become literal sickness but that he bore the sin that is the cause of the evil consequences and thus became our substitute. And that's what you get all through this chapter. He is our substitute. And look at verse 5. Look what it says. He was wounded for our transgression. A better word would be pierced, fatally wounded. Fatally pierced is what's that saying. And it says he was bruised for our iniquities. And that is better translated crushed. Because, I mean, I used to get bruises playing football, and I was kind of proud of them. They didn't mess me up any, right? I didn't see how many bruises I got at the end of a day, and eventually you quit getting them as the season goes on. But that's not what he's saying. He didn't just get a bruise. That word means crushed. It's a word when you, someone is trampled to death. That's what he endured there. He's given a fatal wound and crushed to death while on the cross. And let me ask you the obvious question. Was it for anything he had done? crushed and fatally wounded. It says it was for our transgressions, for our iniquities. And that word for means on account of. See, it was an account of our transgressions that you see our Savior on the cross crushed and fatally wounded. Nothing he had done. Transgression, that means deliberate disobedience. That was all of us. All of us were transgressors. Deliberate disobedience to the Lord and his law. Because you know how that happens? He's given everybody in here a conscience. Written that law in our hearts. And so you say, hey, I know it's wrong to be angry and hate somebody, but here I go. I'm going to let them have it. I know the Lord doesn't want me to do it. It's going to happen anyways. Or worse, somebody gets murdered. Shouldn't commit adultery. Hey, when I, people in the world, they don't worry about that. Their conscience is telling them this is wrong. You shouldn't do that. Oh, we're doing it anyways. Shouldn't be looking with lust. Well, I'm going to peek anyways. Shouldn't steal. Well, my mom's not going to miss $5 out of her purse. See, I'm telling on myself. Did that when I was eight. Took more than five bucks, though. Wrong to lie, but I'm not going to get in trouble for this. Oh, that's the way things are. Transgression. God-given conscience tells us not to do something, but we do it anyways. And listen, my point is, and not to bring up all everybody's sins, but we can all think about all the things we did before we came to the Lord and after. But what I do want us to think about is our transgressions, your transgressions, whoever you are, cause the innocent Lamb of God to be pierced through with a fatal wound. So what we get out of these verses 4 to 6 here is substitution, penal substitution. He became our substitute, and when you say penal, that means there is punishment involved. He took the punishment that we deserved. And so we have that picture. It's in many places, but Leviticus 16, you have two goats that are brought on the Day of Atonement for a sin offering. And one of those goats has his throat slit and dies, and that's the end of him. The other one, though comes and the hot priest lays his hands on the head of that goat 
and confesses all the sins, all the transgressions of the children of Israel are placed on that goat. And he's taken out to the wilderness and let go, never to be seen again. He bore away those sins. Both of those goats have to give their lives as a substitute for the lives of the Israelites. And let me ask you, what had those goats ever done to be treated that way? What had those goats ever done? Nothing. They were innocent victims. Those people had a vivid illustration of what was taking place for the atonement to take place. Think about it. You're bad all week. You're bad all week. You're treating sin lightly. And at the end of the week, the goat gets it in the throat. He's got to die so you can live. And would that make you feel bad? This goat hadn't done a thing. And he's got to die so you can live. Make me feel bad. I had to shoot a cat one time I didn't want to. I felt terrible. But what about Jesus? More lovely, perfect, good, and sinless than any goat. And yet he hangs on a tree. Why? Think about it. Because of your sin and my sin. That's what happened. Crushed, fatally pierced, spit upon, bloodied. And so what should that do to us? If you really see that, it should make us hate sin, shouldn't it? Because that's what caused him to be there. And it should cause us even more to say, hey, I love you with all of my heart. You were willing to do that for me. Because the love of God is not a good feeling and, oh, I just know God cares about me. That's not how it's demonstrated. The love of God is you see where you're headed and you realize the price he was willing to pay, the sacrifice he was willing to make so that we could live. That's how the love of God is demonstrated. That's biblical love. It goes on to say there in verse 5, it says, The chastisement of our peace was upon him. Now, what does that mean? The chastisement of our peace was upon him. It means that the punishment that was necessary to restore or secure our peace with God, it fell on him. That punishment to bring us back into fellowship with God fell on him. And that is love that we'll never understand. He saw our plight and he says, I'll take whatever it is. Whatever has to happen to me, I will go down to that earth and endure that so that these people can live. That they can be brought back to have peace with God. We never would have had that otherwise. And he goes on to say, with his stripes we are healed. And that is healing in a complete sense is what it's talking about there. Physical, spiritual, emotional, mental. Everything that is out of order was taken care of on the cross. I don't care what your problem is in this life. Loneliness, mental problems, depression, it's all taken care of right there. And be given by the Spirit to those who trust Him for it. But it says at the beginning, who has believed our report? And so verse 6 goes on to further describe man's condition. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. And that describes mankind as a whole, right? All of mankind as a whole has gone astray. And it's dangerous being out there without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd are in danger, grave danger. And he goes on to say, we have turned everyone to his own way. That's bringing in the individual responsibility, though, of what we've done. And that describes our Western culture that we live in. Go your own way, right? Go your own way with no interference. Do what you want to do. Do what you think is right. With no interference, especially from God. Thomas got this Time magazine. He's got this subscription. You get Time, something else, nothing he really wants. Anyways, it came in on the front cover, the first man to have a baby. And you read the article, and it's like, first man to have a baby? This is crazy. Well, uh, ain't no man at all. That's what he wants to be, so everyone now in the world is going to call him a man. That's how he identifies himself. Well, he's born a woman. And so what had to happen was this man had to have all these hormones shot in him, he looked like a construction worker, big burly arms. He, looked, he did look just like she looked just like a man. But then this man, woman, wanted, she wanted to have a baby, so she had to cut off the male hormones and then get injected with all these female hormones. And then she's able to have a baby, but she's a man. And there you see this man looks like a man that's a woman nursing a baby. I'm saying if that is not the craziness of this world, right, and everybody thinks that's great. I mean, Time Magazine's not writing this article like they think it's kind of weird. I mean, that is as weird as weird gets, right? But every man goes his own way. Isn't that what the Bible's talking about here? 
And that's like a gross extreme of that. But that's what all of us did. We went our own way. And because of that, it says what? He had to bear the punishment of that. Look what it says at the end of verse 6. Everyone went to his own way. And because of that, us all going our own way, it says the Lord, as a result, had to lay on him the iniquity of us all. All our sins came on one man as he hung there alone. All of our sins came on him. When it says laid on him, that word means cause to arrive at. Everything came on him. In other words, you say we're all, hey, let's all meet at church. And all the cars converge at one point at church. And that's what he's saying. The Lord laid on him. It all converged on him. All of our sins on that cross, the sins of the whole world. But our sins in particular converge on that man, laid on him. He had to bear that. How much do you think that was? A burden to bear. I mean, I look at my own life and all the sins and what that would have had to be, but yet it's all converging on him. Praise God for what he was willing to do for us. And he did it, verse 7 shows us, he did it willingly. That's what's so amazing. So we have, he didn't grudgingly come and suffer for us so that we could be his people. He did it willingly. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted yet. Because he didn't complain, he opened not his mouth. He's brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. You know, he's described there as a lamb, but there is a huge difference. Because sin being willful, it's a willful thing. God can't just overlook it. And the, the heart of our sin... The enormity of it, the awfulness of it, is we're doing it because we want to. So only a person can substitute for a person. Only a consenting will can substitute for a rebellious will. Because an animal that has no idea it's unconsenting, that's why it says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Animals, those, those sheep, they're just going there with blind compliance. They don't care. They would act that way and not resist and not open their mouth. They don't care whether they're getting ready to be sacrificed or whether they're getting ready to get sheared. They don't know the difference. And I've watched a picture of a lamb actually being cut, its throat cut. It just lays there and doesn't move. And they get that knife right up there and it doesn't move till they cut its throat and the blood's out. And the only movement is because it has some involuntary jerking. Doesn't resist at all. But Jesus did that. Knowing what was coming. That lamb has no idea. It's stupid. Literally stupid. But Jesus wasn't. And that's what we're seeing here. That's the beauty of what he did. He wasn't an unconsenting animal. He laid down his life knowing what was coming. That's his mission to come and die on our behalf. That should move our hearts. It really should. He says, therefore does my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. He says, no man takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. And this commandment have I received of my Father. So what should our response be? Behold the Lamb of God. What should our response be to the loving sacrifice of the suffering servant of Isaiah 53? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Gaze on the one who was pierced for your transgressions, crushed for your iniquity. The one who carried away, came and picked up, took it off of us and carried away our sicknesses, bore our pains on the cross. All because of us turning to our own way, walking away from the Lord, and God had to lay all of your iniquities and my iniquities upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I would say, when you see what he did for you there, it should cause us all to say what Paul said in Galatians 2. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, right? For me, not Joe or Sally, right? But for me, and that is a revelation. And hey, if you're in here today and you've never had that revelation to see that it's for you, pray. And ask God to show you that. He'll open your eyes to the cross because the Lord says, Look unto me, all ye ends of the earth, and be saved. 
Look on that cross. Listen to what's said. Read Isaiah 53. That's for all of us. And then what will happen? What should our reaction be? When you have that revelation, for all of us here, most of us here have had that revelation, have experienced that. What should we do? We should sing what? Worthy is the Lamb. Shouldn't we? Sing with the four beasts, the 24 elders, and the countless angels in Revelation 5. They bowed down before Him. Because of what they saw He did, He willingly came and suffered. That's how His love was shown. And they said, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Isn't that where your heart's at with the Lord? You've done all that for me. You should receive everything, all honor, riches, power, glory, and blessing. You deserve it all, Lord, because without you, I'd be nowhere. Isn't that the way it is? And Revelation 7 describes a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. And they cried with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God, which sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb. The Lion of the tribe of Judah he's called, but he's mainly called the Lamb. In the book of Revelation, that death, I'm saying it's the crucial event of all of history. And it talks about the great multitude that is there. And who's in that great multitude? Many faces. So bear with me. I heard a man say this. I thought it was good. You, you know, you go to those baseball stadiums, 50,000 people there, and they get the old jumbotron. And all of a sudden, they focus in on one person there and another person. And one time, it was Adam. Adam went to a ball game. Adam, where were you? You didn't see me on the Jumbotron? So Adam is up in the corner. I had him on the Jumbotron, I guess. And, and we missed him. But that's what they'll do. And you see that one face singled out of the crowd, right? And so look in that great multitude. And the Jumbotron focuses in on the paralytic of Mark 2. There he is, right in that crowd. One of the redeemed. And looks another place over here. Here's the Philippian jailer and his family. They're all waving, happy. Praise God, we've been redeemed, right? Oh, over here's the Roman centurion. How did he get there? Well, he had that revelation that we're talking about. Happened to him. He's gazing on that cross. God had to open his eyes. Truly, this man was the son of God. There he is, the Roman centurion, right there in that crowd. And look over there. Who are we seeing? The thief on the cross. So it says down here in Isaiah 53, 12, that he was numbered, Jesus was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He hung with the transgressors, the two thieves. That's what it's talking about there. Both railed on him at one time. And then guess what happened? It says, to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? And it happened to one of those thieves. Revelation. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? One of those thieves. Because it says, one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If you be the Christ, save thyself and us. But the other had his eyes opened. And he answered and rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, seeing you are in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly. For we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into the kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto you, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And here's that thief sitting there with that jumbotron camera, got the biggest smile on his face because he realized he received grace that he never deserved. And we sing the song, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And I really like the next verse. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Because that's what I think. I is no better than him. If it, the Lord did that for him, he'll do it for me. Praise God. So what happened to that thief on that cross? It was grace. Amazing grace that opened his eyes, right? They had been blind. And so what caused all of us? 
What caused all of us to turn from our sins and give our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ and be willing to trust in His blood and make Him our Lord and Savior? What caused us to do that and not our other friends and not our other family members heard the same things we did? I'm sure we shared the same truth we heard with them and just, they just can't see it. Because the arm of the Lord has to be revealed. And if it's happened for you, praise God. That is a reason to rejoice. And here, I'm going to close with this. We sing this song, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. Can you sing that? He took my sins and sorrows and made them his very own. So I don't have to bear them anymore. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. What a Savior. Then with the ransomed in glory, his face I at last shall see. T'will be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. Oh, how marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. And let's let that be our song for all of eternity. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Hallelujah. And Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you were willing to suffer on our behalf and, and all the pain, excruciating pain you went through on that cross for our transgressions, for our iniquities. And I ask, Lord, you'll just open all of our eyes. Open our eyes that we may see Jesus for who he is and for what he's done. And that will help us to grow in our love and faithfulness to you. And for anyone here, Lord, that doesn't know you, that hasn't trusted in you, I'd ask that you'll bear the arm. Bear your arm to them, the power that's there in the cross to deliver them from sin and give them life. I thank you that you'll do that. And I ask that you'll speak to all of us today and that we'll appreciate and behold the wonder of the Lamb on the cross. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.